You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and my co-host Bob is out putting a fire out um, at a library near you. He's actually uh, he's dealing with a server meltdown somewhere, so he has his fire truck, his fire hose, and his trusty Dalmatian with him, uh, putting out another IT fire. So today, we are coming to you again from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. Now, if this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check out our, and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, Android, email. We have an email service. And now on Google Play. Links and notes from today's show can be found on our website, www.thelibrarypros.com, on Twitter at, at @thelibrarypros, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today, our guest is... <laughs> look, at, I messed up on the script with that, too. Uh, today, our guest is Steve Spataro. Steve is the head of adult reference at the East Hampton Library, not to be confused with the East Hampton Public Library in Connecticut. We just had a conversation about that. So they're in East Hampton, New York. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we are uh, going to speak with Steve today about uh, his life in, on the east end of Long Island, libraries and their treatment of videos on DVD, VHS, streaming, and preservation of rare VHS recordings. Uh, Steve is a little bit of an aficionado when it comes to, uh, to the cinema, so we're really fortunate to have him here today. But first, let's talk to Steve about his background and how he came to become the head of reference at the East Hampton Library. So first, can you tell us about the East Hampton Library? Just a little background. Well, the library was um, first opened its doors in 1887, and the building that we're presently in now opened its doors in October 1912. So it's a little over 100 years old, and it's still going strong. Uh, it has recently uh, had a new children's wing added to it in 2014. And now there's a new young adult room in a process of construction. That's exciting. And we keep moving on ahead into the future. Um, there's going to be some new computers. Um, the children's wing, we just got a brand new fish tank. So oh, the kids love fish. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, we're always adding to our shelves, you know, new materials at at all times. Um, we have use of our electronic databases. Uh, we we do help a lot of people with everything from searching for books and music to research. Um, we've it it it's something different every single day it's never never the same never the same That's questions true. right and you know sometimes things will come up like for example with we use all different emails and you know i i help people who have yahoo's who have msn hotmail and you the know, dreaded aol 
And you learn, because people will say, you know, where do I go to print? Where do I click print? And everybody's email is different, so the little print icon is in different spots. So, you know, you learn all these different things every day. Oh, just click the three dots right here, you know, and then the print icon comes down. And right. So it's, it's, it's different on a daily. If it was just the same questions every day, it would just get, you know, played out but it's different different every day and you know we we get to do a lot with technology i get a lot of e-readers and people uh, looking for materials that they want electronically and we help them every friday we have e-reader tutorials we've been having that for years every friday afternoon bring in whatever tablet you have and we'll hook you up with overdrive and uh we have um a class coming up called ipad part two because we did ipad part one in august and i'm doing a google class and i have someone doing a photoshop class and we just keep on with all the latest technologies i have somebody doing pinterest next month and we do go back to the to the basics to Microsoft Word and to Excel, but I I do have um, computer basics. One mm-hmm. of them is called mouse and keyboarding, and you know we just keep having whatever the people need, pretty much. And Serving the community. Yeah, I mean, like you know, I I just I just reordered another batch of absentee ballot applications, and um, I ordered I ordered another batch of um, of uh, voter registration forms because you know with what's going on, everything that's going on, you get, it's the the time people are going to ask for that, so you want to have that on hand. Sure. Civil service forms have. I uh, have an ample amount of driving manuals, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. anything that's free, you want to get it. If it's sure. free, you know, if they're like, it's free to libraries. Hey, yeah, yeah. can I get two boxes? You know, <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, you know, and I'm, I'm going to put in, I put in my order already for for tax, tax forms, forms for 2017. We already had our first question here at Satrum. When, um, when, when can you get the tax forms? So I, I get them in um, from the, the state. Usually at the end of December, they start coming in, and then the federal forms start coming in. Um, but, yeah, we have, to, we have to make some adjustments, too, because with the tax forms, in order to serve everyone, there are people who still like to have the tax form instruction books. Right. And a lot of times... Some of them they're not printing anymore. So what we do is we we print out. I print out about ten of them and I circulate them, so That's people smart. can can get you know the booklet. People who want the booklet, I go well. You you know they may not be sending them to you anymore, but you know you can come to your local library and we'll we'll make sure you get them. You know, sure. And. Uh, and as this tax season approaches, we have um, AARP tax counselor volunteers mm-hmm. who help out with the taxes for for people. So, no matter what help you need, I mean, it's it's the place to go. 
I mean, Absolutely. If you needed anything as a starting point, you should always start at the library because, you know, you, you never know what you're going to be guided to. And That's then, so true. So can you tell us um, about when you became the head of reference, the adult reference department? Uh, let's see. It's, it is now, it's going on seven years. Is it seven years? Yeah. Because when we, we, we actually worked together uh, at the Longwood Public Library, and I remember when you got the job. Time flies. Time flies. <laughs> seven years. Wow. That's, that's, wow. And I remember when, when, when I started, we had things in different sections, and now with the construction and changes, things have all moved to different sections, and things have become expanded. So it's like, you know, you look back and you say, gee, it was that long ago already? Yeah. <laughs> so um, East Hampton's uh, an association library. It's not a civil service library, so you didn't have to jump through all the, the civil service hoops in order to, to get a job there. No, when, when we have a position open, we would generally advertise it on the listserv or on the, the job line and... Um, you know, there's no there's no test involved with uh, with taking the uh, retain the space on lists, mm -hmm. but um, you know it, it's the I know the job market out there it's tight. It's, it is. It's tough to 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 get in to various libraries with uh, a lot of people coming out of school and. But, you know, I, I just say keep plugging at it because, you know, that's what I did, and eventually something will come along. Now, now, for people who aren't familiar with where East Hampton is, because we have a lot of people who listen to our podcasts that are from uh, upstate New York and from other regions of the country, and we actually have some, some listeners in Australia and England and Denmark. So hello, Europe. Hello, Oceana. It's, it's nice that you're listening. Thank you. Please keep listening. Uh, if you can describe, if for those of you who don't know, uh, Long Island's in uh, New York. It's it's the island that sticks out east from New York City. And in fact, two boroughs in New York City, Brooklyn and Queens, are actually part of Long Island, but we don't really consider it Long Island. Uh, and if you can, if you've ever seen a map of Long Island, at the end, it kind of looks like a fish. So when you look at the end, there are two peninsulas that come off the island. We call them the Forks. And the South Fork is where the vaulted and very well-known Southampton is, where all the celebrities hang out. But then there's the even more, uh, I don't want to say elite, but it kind of makes Southampton look like the rest of the island when you're talking about East Hampton. Is that true? Well, the, there's people who are in the entertainment industry that you can, you can find them from... West Hampton to, to Montauk Point. To Montauk, yeah. And uh, there's, in the summertime, mostly in the summertime, you never know who you're going to bump into on, on the street, you know, going to Starbucks or, you know, walking walk to the post office. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it adds a little bit of, at first it was like, you know, wow, but... You know, you get used to it after a while. I mean, just like everybody else, you know, regular people going out, getting a hamburger, uh, doing some food shopping. They're people. Yep. They're not robots. Right. That's, that's really, really cool. That must really be a lot of fun. 
to turn around and all of a sudden see a uh, giant celebrity standing next to you, <laughs> yeah. ask, answering you, you know, asking a reference question. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, we've we've had various um, people in the entertainment, a, a lot of a lot of writers, because we have the author event um, every every second second Saturday in August of every year is Authors Night, and it's a big fundraiser for the for the library. Um, we have it's a book signing, uh, and people can purchase tickets to the book signing, a cocktail hour, and they can also purchase tickets to a dinner in an individual household with their favorite author. And uh, it's been going on now for 12 years, and it's one of the uh, top events of the summer out in the Hamptons now. That's just great. And uh, it's under a, under a big tent, and, uh, you know, even... If you have, say, 70 authors slated to be there, you never know who's going to stop by. <laughs> That's just amazing. So um, it's in, since we brought up the, the celebrity angle, I think it's kind of a nice transition to talk about the, um, the funding that your library receives. Now, most libraries do receive their funding from property taxes. Can you tell us what, what, the, what the, the formula is for 60, 65% from taxes and then 35 percent from um, individual donations and all the construction the construction for the children's wing and the young adult uh, uh, room are all, are all from generous donations from uh, from individuals that love libraries and support the library and uh, there's a lot of a lot of fundraising involved mm -hmm. But uh, you know it's 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 changed a lot. It's it's built an, a a new a whole new uh, a whole new force that can be used for years to come by people. That's great. So um, from from what I remember, you got your master's at St. John's. St. John's. You went to St. John's. You're Johnny. Most people are CW Post, Long Island University, or uh, or Queens, so that's a little bit different. Getting your MLS from St. John's, isn't it? Yeah, they had um, they they still have the program, but I I got into it um, about thirteen and a half years ago. So that's when they were kind of in their infancy, St. John's University. Yeah, they had the annex in Oakdale at LaSalle, and there were classes being offered in Queens and in Oakdale. So it was interesting because I got to, if I was working during the week, <coughs> I could take a class on a Saturday mm -hmm. in Oakdale. You know, I, I think I, I took my cataloging class on a Saturday and then maybe a couple of others uh, on, a, on a Saturday over the years. But uh, it, was, it was a good experience. I mean, the picking up, I, when I was in library school, I started cataloging at Mastic Maritza Shirley, and then it just caught on, and, you know, I do that, I still do that now with um, 
with DVDs and then books that come in with no with no mark record. I make originals from that. I do it for the children's books, the adult books, and the young adult books. That's becoming a lost scale too. Yeah, yeah. Now we have the you know we have some new changes with the RDA codes in there, but you know it's an important aspect because if those records are wrong, the subject headings are wrong, or it's a film and it has no actors listed or anything, it's going to be very hard to locate. <laughs> sure. Especially if you're searching by some of the, you know, maybe cinematographer or uh, director or producer or something like that. Yeah, the new RDA codes, actually, there's a slash at the end of the name and it says, like, author, or it'll say director, actor, um, cinematography. So now it's it's even even more helpful for pulling out uh, the materials that someone's looking for. Well, that's actually a nice transition to the next question that I had for you, because um, from what I remember, you have a rather, uh, not only do you have a vast knowledge of, of the cinema, but you also have a, a personal movie collection. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I Has have, it gotten much bigger? It, it, it has. Um, I... Where I where where we live, I have a, a there's a storage unit downstairs, and uh, it's not overflowing, but I'd say there's a good maybe three or four boxes in there mm-hmm. of, of VHS tapes. Um, most of the stuff that I I keep inside are the DVDs um, and a few tapes here and there, but most of most of the material now is. Uh, is on DVD. I've replaced most of the tapes that I could get on DVD. I kept a few of them, and the only ones that I haven't replaced are ones that I'm not able to to get at this moment in time. They're either not released, or no one knows where the original print is, <laughs> and the the tape is all I have. So I uh, I hang on to it. I I mean, and when I have some some downtime, I still go hunting in the thrift stores, mm-hmm. you know, look and see what uh, what people have donated, and you know, you never know what's going to turn up. You know, the long lost Alice Cooper concert from 1976 that was out on that tape in 1982 that was never reissued might. Someone may have donated it and get it for a buck, you know. Yeah, you never know. So it's, uh, you know, it, it it does take up a lot of space actually to <laughs> to collect. So tell me how you um, got started with your love of, of movies in the cinema. Did it start when you were a kid? Yeah, long long time back. Um, I would say what what happened was in the in the early 80s well actually in the well VCR became uh, introduced to the public in 1976 for home use so we got our first one in 82 and I remember it came with a uh, a blank tape and they were like oh you know you can you could put this tape in there and you can put the switch up and you can record something while that's on at three in the morning while you're sleeping. Like setting your coffee maker. Right. 
So <laughs> I'd be like, oh, you know, a little, little kid. I figured out how to do that, and I'd look through the TV guide, and I'd go, oh, oh, this looks good, you know. This this movie looks good. I think I'll tape, watch it the next day. Well, that's not bad. That's actually pretty good. I think I'll keep that one, you know. But if it was lousy, you record over it. Yeah. Put another movie on it. Of course, the more times you record it over it, the worse the quality got on the tape. That's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. And you know when I when tapes were very expensive, so when I was a kid, you know we we couldn't always be buying new blank tapes. So today, as is with a lot of materials, if you record on the slower speed, you get the better quality. Was it SLP. Yeah. So yeah. We, we used to use SLP and <laughs> put super right, long play. Yeah, I could put three movies on there. Yeah, but you know now the quality's diminished after the third play. Sure. But you know. When when you're seven eight years old, that's that's perfectly fine, you know. Because you, you got to watch the movie, right? And you could you can say, oh, I have that on tape, you know, I have that on. But um, if time time went on, and you know, then we went into into DVDs, and little by little, I just replaced as many of the tapes that I could onto DVD. And of course, picked up some more along the way, <laughs> and uh, I still I, I still have some videotapes. I have a couple of, I have a few three quarter inch tapes, because my my three quarter inch machine is still uh, actively working. I do every now and then I'll get somebody that has three quarter tapes that'll be like, hey, you know, can you put this on a DVD for me and. You know, sometimes they're, they're tapes that came from broadcasting, mm -hmm. you know, from, from the 70s. I had somebody who worked in television that had, he did stuff with local programs, and he had tapes of shows that he did in the 70s, and I transferred them for him onto DVD. And he actually had these tapes in his, in his barn, actually. Wow. And th they stayed in good shape? For the most part, except one of them I took apart. I had to take apart, and I had some... Uh, I used the the cleaner that you would use to spray onto a keyboard to clean out the... Because it had... What happens is if you if you keep them in a, in a room temperature place, like at 68 degrees, they should be okay. But if you have tapes exposed to extreme heat and cold they'll get like a like a white fungus around the uh the tape mm -hmm. and i had taken this apart and i cleaned out as much as i could and i put it back together and lo and behold i got the whole program transferred on a decent shape from that but uh it was it was part of a series that was from uh from an environmental show from the 70s, so it was kind of essential part of Long Island history. So I was I was happy I was able to to get that onto DVD. But I've had other things that turned up, you know, from time to time. Uh, things that were were filmed locally, like uh, 
events that took place on Long Island, like on the East End. and this was, Those are the attic finds that you found, right? Well, yeah, the attic finds, but then that branched out into other finds because people were finding things, and they, they kept finding their way to me. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, yeah, you know, this was uh, this was filmed on Main Street. You know, we filmed this in 1974, and nobody's seen it ever since. You know, can you, can you see if this still works? And wow put it on a disc and they're like wow i remember look at them cars i remember that yeah. don't you love that it's like watching a, a rolling museum mm-hmm. so you know we always say if you got anything that you shot locally you know and you have it on a one of these formats let us know and we'll we'll see to we to get it transferred to preserve it you know like uh if somebody, let's say, for example, gave a talk at the library, you know, let's say like Truman Capote gave a talk in 1970 and someone filmed that, you know, that would be something you'd want to keep and preserve in the archive. Definitely. So, you know, I, I keep a lookout for material like that, you know, that uh, may have long-lasting value down the line. So it almost seems like what your personal love was transitioned very well to your career. Yeah, I mean, what will happen is every now and then someone will come in and they'll throw out an obscure title and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that, that, that never came out on video or DVD. But, yeah, but, you know, it does turn up every now and then on such and such a channel. <laughs> Or I've 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 even myself written to I mean I like the IMDb. There's a good uh, you know when you click on company credits and you see who the distributor was mm-hmm. at the time. You can actually write to the company if they still exist and uh, you know find out if there's a chance movie movie will come out on DVD. A lot of times what happens is. Either they don't know where the original element is for certain instances, or they've just crumbled. Mm-hmm. Or in in certain instances, through mergers, other companies ended up with the movies in their possession. But now, today, with a lot of films, they have burn on demand. So you have all the different archives. You have the Warner archives, the Sony there's one called Universal Vault, and they're technically taking their back catalog. Some of the films have big stars in them, but a, a lot of them are more like obscure titles, you know, maybe pictures that were on double bills. And they're doing a limited run per order. Mm-hmm. So if a person orders it for, say, 1995, They'll get. They won't get all the bells and whistles like the trailers and special features. They'll just get a copy of the movie, mm-hmm. which you know, for most collectors, is fine. That's what they're looking for, yeah. But uh, I I like that because I see all the time with Warner Archives, they're always releasing new titles every week, and it's like, wow, you know, <laughs> they dug that one up. Yeah. Well, wow, it's it's really cool that you know I, I've known for years you've had this you know this love of not just movies but the preservation and all that other stuff. And um, after we take a short break, 
uh, I want to talk more with you specifically about um, uh, libraries and how they've transitioned from their collections of VHS to DVD and streaming and talk a little bit about preservation and things like that. So we'll be back in just a minute with more with Steve. Hi, and we're back with Steve Spataro, who's the head of the Adult Reference Department at the East Hampton Library in East Hampton, New York. So, Steve, uh, we, we uh, remember the days when VHS was king. Uh, then DVDs and Blu-rays came, became the standard, and now we're transitioning to streaming services. Tell me briefly about uh, what you think are the best attributes of each format. Well, the VHS... Um at the time, was the most durable format. Um, Although beta was better quality. True, true, and smaller. Um, but the the thing, I would say from a library perspective, although DVDs, the quality is, is better, uh, and Blu-ray quality, y you have even, even better 10, 1080p. Uh, you have better sound. Uh, they do tend to get scratched with heavy use, and VHS kind of could take more of a beating than the, uh, than the DVDs and the Blu-rays. Um, but as far as quality goes, I think that the, the, the DVDs and Blu-rays still do well in the library. Um, streaming, right now we have the, the Hoopla service okay. through Midwest Tapes, and... The, they have expanded the collection, and they have more recent films in there, and they've extended the lending period. Um, I stream. I've used Hoopla to stream. I've also streamed from Amazon, and I've also streamed streamed from VUDU. And I I find that if the if it's 1080, I usually have a great quality picture. Um, on a on a decent connection on a fast connection it's good I've not experienced any breaks in the film although on a slower connection I have seen it stop for a second to have to load and then, sure the buffering but um, I I find even I've 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 streamed as low as 480 and uh, on on a on a good widescreen TV of good quality, you know, if that's the only thing that's available, if if the print was not in good shape and they took what they had and they put it in that format, of course, a higher a higher density is going to be much better. But uh, even even 480 didn't look that bad on TV. Um, 270 was not good. But oh, I'm sure. 
but uh, but I'd say between if you could get it between 480, 720 is good, but 1080 being the the better mm-hmm. quality. Um, I I I've seen them all, and uh, you know what a lot of what I look at a lot of these television shows you know that were deemed long lost that the tape turns up sometimes the quality wasn't good to begin with so you know the the streaming actually or if it's on a disc but streaming actually is uh is is good to have because you could you could it's in the cloud so you could watch it over and over and over again you're not going to wear it out you're not going to scratch it right right and you know the the more space you have on your on your drives, it's like on your cable box. You know if you if you DVR something and you know it's a it's a show you're gonna look at a lot, you can leave it in your DVR. You don't have to sure. take it out, and uh, you can keep replaying it. And you have all the functions of rewinding, fast forward. Whereas with the with the videotapes, you know. When you rewound while it was in play mode, you got tracking lines and mm-hmm. pausing. You'd have tracking lines and especially if you recorded under SLP. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, you can get a lot of extra tracking lines there. <laughs> and uh, that's I would I would say as far as what people are checking out now. If I run lists, I find still the standard DVDs are circulating more than the Blu-rays. Our streaming, it's starting to pick up um, with promotions and also with uh, education, showing people that we have the service and making them aware. Um, But I still get people who say, oh, yeah, I'll take the regular DVD. I don't have Blu-ray. You know, yeah, and that's that's one of the questions I always ask people because it it's always seems to be easier to get the the newer movies in Blu-ray because not as many people have the player. But you still have to ask the question. I, I find that very fascinating for people who have a Blu-ray player or may not even know if their player is Blu-ray or not. Yeah, we put them in the in a case and we have it marked, you know, Blu-ray, and they're a different size than the regular cases. Right, they're a little shorter, right? But um, I find I I prefer to get the by the 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 Blu-ray always because many times now they have the the new combo and triple packs. So right. if you buy the Blu-ray, you'll get a Blu-ray, a standard, and a downloadable. Right. So you're kind of getting three for the price of one. And you know if I need to get another standard copy. I'll I'll wait a little while, maybe a few weeks, and the price on the standard will drop down to like sixteen ninety nine, and then I'll grab an extra one. Right. But if I buy the Blu-ray and I get the combo pack, I get to circulate both formats first when the movie's hot, and then I add according to holds any extra copies that need to be added. Right. Uh, so, do you think something is? lost with the immediacy of downloading video playback versus the, the, the idea of actually holding a disc or holding a cassette and saying that I own this, this is mine, it's for my collection, yeah. as opposed to just you know going to Amazon or Hoopla or whatever else and typing in The Godfather 
and there it is, and now you hit play, and then after it loads for 10 seconds, it's just there. Yeah, I mean, with The Godfather, I mean, Paramount did an, an excellent set with the three films, and they they put the three films, and they had notes, and they had a nice booklet with that, a collectible booklet with photographs from the film, from the production, and, you know, things like that can become collectible. Absolutely. If they, let's say, for example, they they did a run of a particular film on DVD, and for a limited time, there were 400 reproduced lobby cards in there, and they were all signed by the director. You know, that set, you know, you could hang on to that, and maybe down the line, years down the line, you can resell that for collectible value. Sure. Whereas <coughs> if you stream it, you know, to me, if it's just something I want to watch, I just want to see it, you know, I'd, I'd more than likely I would stream it. And if I say, hey, you know, that's great, I'd like to own that, then, you know, it helps instead of just buying the DVD and then you watch it and you say, eh, this movie's not, wasn't worth it. Right. You know, it's I almost could, the other way around. When it used to be where you would, even before the days when they were mainstream video stores, you know, maybe you missed a movie that when it came out and now it's on DVD and you'd have to buy it for $19.99 or $25.99 if it was subsidized by Pepsi or someone else. And you'd buy it and you'd get a dog and now it's just sitting in your closet as a dog. Then it transitioned to the video stores where you could try it and then just bring it back after three days if you didn't like it to the point now where... Or you go to the library and get it for free. <laughs> right. And now it's almost come full circle where if you're a collector and you're looking for the Jaws 25th anniversary or the Godfather or Smokey and the Bandit or Bad News Bears or something along the original, not the, the remake. The remake was <laughs> terrible. Uh, if you know, Now it's almost like you're going and you're searching for them as opposed to going to a store because you have nothing else you know, at, as a dis at your disposal and buying something because you want to watch a movie. Well, too, also, because DVDs have been this, we're going on 20 years now with DVDs, and there are actually DVDs that are out of print that came out in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and again, a lot of it has to do with sometimes the film companies, either the, the releasing company went out of business or changed hands and the pictures in limbo and there are movies now that I see going on Amazon that are sixty, seventy dollars out of print from the marketplace because yeah. you can't find them, you know, in, in stores or or newly manufactured. Right. And then it becomes sought after. You know, and that's then it becomes something you search for on Amazon or eBay or something like that and you find a treasure. Yeah, or even in some cases I've noticed that they have the movie for available for streaming with Amazon Prime. Either you could stream it for free, or if you're not a Prime member, you can you can stream it for three ninety nine. Mm -hmm. But to buy the actual hard copy DVD, which is out of print, it's eighty dollars for a right. used one. It's silly, right? So you know. But that's for the the, the super collectors. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so at at East Hampton, um, do you still have VHSs? I 
I don't have any fiction ones anymore, but I do have about maybe 60 nonfiction. I, I kept um, certain ones that were not available, like Alistair Cook's America. I kept that whole set. Um, some of the uh, cooking ones that pertained to uh, local people, like we had uh, a lot of Craig Claiborne cooking uh, VHS tapes, and a number of them aren't available on DVD, and he was a local, so I, I kept those. Yeah, you can't get rid of something like that. Right. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's on DVD, but it's, it was narrated by Eli Wallach, the history of East Hampton town. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I did keep the tapes uh, on that one because of its significance. But I, I do check, I run lists on that, and when they become available on DVD, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll replace them with the DVD. I have one that, uh, Dick Cavett did on lighthouses, which is definitely a local piece. And, uh, you know, I kept that VHS tape. So I I do keep them interfiled in with the books, the nonfiction. I have nonfiction DVDs in there, but throughout the stacks, scattershot, you'll find a, a tape or two here and there. Well, that makes sense, especially if it's not something that was reproduced onto DVD. Yeah. So when um, when you do find that it's difficult to replace a VHS um, with a DVD, you know, do you see that when you went through and you you discarded the VHS collection, did you make a concerted effort to try to find the DVD before oh, you? Oh yeah, yeah. No, if it wasn't on DVD, you just didn't go wholesale and say, okay, everything on the cart and out out the door. Nope. No. No. Nope. Um, I had at one time, I had six foreign VHS tapes on the shelf because they weren't available on DVD. And mm-hmm. I had them at the end of the the run until they became available, until Criterion put them out or Fox Lorber. And uh, I, I got rid of the last one probably last year. So I have now I just have my 60 non-fictions. That is mm-hmm. still downstairs, and um, I I still every once in a while like if you search the catalog for VHS tapes, every every library has their own little unique thing mm-hmm. hanging out in there still. And didn't uh, Patchogue at one time have the largest uh, martial arts video collection? They had they had quite a lot of pictures there that were not on DVD on the VHS tape and they had like there was one company many years ago Vesteron Vesteron Video I remember that the big V would come up on the, the screen the big V right they were one of the earliest distributors of pictures I would say I, I don't like to use the term B movies but they they were movies that maybe were drive-in or second rate Attack of the 50 Foot Woman and yeah yeah and I I found one of the, one of the libraries I think uh, at at one time um, searching the catalog Comswog had a, a number of those titles that was still in the collection and I said this is this is great you know it's a treasure yeah because especially if it wasn't uh, a, a film that was on DVD there were some movies they had that were made in Canada with um, 
big stars that were not on DVD, and you, you'd have the VHS tape there, and you know, just say interloan it, and you could watch it, and hey, look at that, there's still a tape copy there. So when you did get rid of the, the VHS collection, and there were some titles that you couldn't get on DVD, did you hold on to them, or did you cry and have a funeral for them when you no. discarded them? No, we kept them in the collection. Till That's smart. Till they became available. And eventually you got every single one of them, huh? I did. I did. I got, I, I got, because Criterion is a great company that puts out a lot of international films, and a lot of the pictures that I couldn't find were uh, some international titles from the 40s and 50s, and Criterion, lately they came out with two Orson Welles titles that were never available on DVD. Mm-hmm. And they make these, they come out with these beautiful, well-written books, commemorative booklets, uh-huh. and um, excellent, always the best transfers. And, you know, it's it's worth holding on to the tape, waiting for, unless, it, unless it's broken, you right. know, and it can't be fixed. But Even that, you crack them open and get a razor blade out and <laughs> try to, so it's I just a jump in the movie for brain, five seconds. Brain surgery. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Hoping the gears aren't too stripped. And oh, I've actually taken other tapes that were like non-pre-recorded apart to take parts out of them to to save some of the. Uh, Steve Spataro, VHS mechanic. Oh, I, I, yeah, I had, you know, I, I had for a long time. I actually had a parts. Uh, a parts draw. Uh, yeah. Oh wow. With rollers in there, and I. Now that's dedication couple of metal, a few clamps. The little foam for underneath the, the reader when the head would hit the, the tape? That was Yeah, that was for cassette tapes. Cassettes had oh, they those, didn't, that's right. They didn't felt. have foam for VHS. Now, the felt was in, it was in cassette tapes, and the A-tracks had the felt. Yes, the A-tracks. That's another podcast we could do one day, just A-track. Yeah. Oh, I, we still ha- I still have some. I, I, think I, I think I have Kiss Alive, but I think yeah. everybody had Kiss Alive. Yeah, from 1975. 75, yeah. 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 That and the Bay City Rollers. Don't you ask could, me why. You could probably sell those on eBay if they still play. You can you can sell those. Yeah, I don't even know if they still play. I had an 8-track in my uh, my Chrysler, my Plymouth uh, Aries K car. No, it was the Dodge Reliant. Was it Plymouth Reliant? It was a Plymouth Reliant. And I had, uh, I had got from Radio Shack, because we're talking about the 80s. Yeah, we're showing our age. The converter? The converter. So it looked like this big black thing that stuck out of your dashboard. And you would press the button and the cassette would flip up. And you would pop the cassette in and it made this terrible, like, uh, not feedback, but it had like a hissing, wheezing sound when you played it. But you didn't care. The buttons stuck out like this on the bottom of the converter. Yep, exactly. But... But when you pulled, it was probably, the shift was probably on the steering wheel. When it was, yeah, it so down. you would have to be careful that your fist right. wouldn't hit it. Right, yeah. We had a Plymouth like that, and the converter used to stick out. And uh, It was very creative shifting into drive. Yeah, yeah. And but that was the type of, of, of tape that, uh, that used, well, it had, it had felt and it had, uh, it, it had the... Uh, the, the tin foil piece because right. it was a, it was an integrated circuit and that's what triggered it to change the program. That's right. And uh, 
back in the day, they used to sell those little pieces of felt with their razor slices in them on <laughs> cards for replacing them. So people were able to take the tapes apart and fix that instead of... The good old days. They, you know, technology evolves from one thing to another, you know. It's sure. It's always evolving now. Oh, yeah, constantly. It's hard to keep up. At your library, um, do you have an idea of what, you know, your search stats look for each format? I mean, obviously VHS isn't a, a player anymore, but, you know, D DVD versus Blu-ray, and even if you, your stats for Hoopla. I mean, you said your, st your stats are coming up. They're coming up for that. They're coming up for, for Hoopla, but the stats for regular DVDs are higher than the Blu-ray. Yeah. I mean, and like you said earlier, you know, patrons don't even know if they have a Blu-ray player at home. And I always tell them, well, can you make a phone call? Can you find out? It says it right on the front. And if it is, guess what? The movie's in. But if it's just a DVD player, you're going to have to put it on hold because it's not available. Well, you know, now they have a new thing. They have the 4K DVDs, and you need the 4K player right. to play those. But I don't. I did read that one library somewhere in this, the Southwest uh, started a 4K collection, but I don't foresee a 4K collection starting now um, because it's gonna be right there with your video, your, your laser discs. <laughs> <laughs> the laser discs, uh, those. They tried so hard with them, didn't they? They really, really tried hard, and it just it never took off. Yeah, they were still making them up, and even when DVDs first started, they still had Laserdisc films. Um, Top Gun. Top Gun was the big one. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was because, too, you had to flip them around. Right. That was one of the uh, the issues with that. And, and, you know, they did take up a lot of space on the shelf because they were the size of albums. Mm -hmm. um, but... At the same time that Laserdiscs came out, they had another format. You had your CEDs, your capacitance electronic discs, which were the the discs that were enclosed in a in a plastic shell, and you couldn't touch them. You couldn't take them out. You had to put the front side of the disc in the machine. It would snap down, pull it out and it would play the first part of the movie. And it was actually a needle stylus playing it. So Seriously? If you got too close to the machine or there was a um, something that was blocking the play, the, the picture would skip like 20 frames. It would jump ahead. And when you wanted to play the other side, you had to put the case in in the shell on the first side. It snapped. You pulled it out. You turned it around. You had to put it in again. Yeah. It would snap and play the second half of the movie. But those... That it sounds like the voting ballots that we have now in Suffolk County. It nearly, it nearly bankrupted RCA because they only had them for about two years on the market. You could find... There's a, I think there's a website that's dedicated to CEDs and to people who collect them, and they have them on eBay and... I see them in the thrift stores turn up every now and then, but by 1985, those were gone off the market. I don't, I don't know of any libraries that ever had capacitance electronic discs yeah. to loan. But it's the first time I've ever heard of them. Well, yeah, actually, 
video and for home use goes back to actually 1972 because they had a television set back then. Sears sold them. It was called Cartrivision. And it <laughs> took a cartridge tape that you put into it. Mm -hmm. And they had these cartridges pre-made already. They had maybe 50 titles. But you had to buy the TV with the cartridge player in it. Mm -hmm. And there were two types of cartridges. There were cartridges that you could rewind on your player. And then there were other cartridges that were play-only cartridges that would play. And then you would have to take it back to the store for the guy at Sears to rewind it. Oh, wow. And if you wanted to see it again, you had to re-rent it. <laughs> and... There's an interesting YouTube video with a guy who gets one of these and he actually takes it apart and you see the inner workings of it. And it's technically it's technically a loop, like an A-track. Mm -hmm. And the, the quality of them, after about two or three plays, they'd start to deteriorate. Wow, that's not a and long shelf life at all. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. I, I think there's another YouTube video that was... a it was a Sears, like an industry video that, uh, it was an industry film that, that explained about Cartrivision mm -hmm. and how it was going to revolutionize the industry and how, you know, you'd sell the Cartrivision television set and the customer could come in the store and they would buy the film and, you know, and it, and it didn't take off. It, it didn't take off until the, the Betamax came out a few years later right and then home use started after that 1980 you had your first video stores so right. it was pretty much around the same time but i think the first time i ever saw movies in the library was uh, when i was maybe five or six was at middle country in the early 80s mm -hmm. 80 82 83 right that's when and and in those days, if your tape was late, one tape, it was a $5 fine. Wow. So you didn't want to have a, a late VHS tape. Back yeah, exactly. Then. But, uh, you know, that was that was always fun. You know, if it was a rainy weekend or something, you'd go and they, they'd let you take out three tapes. You know, <laughs> and that was, that was the limit, the max. Because, I mean, you have to remember, they were costing them about 100 bucks a movie. That's right. That's right. Unless they were subsidized with commercials. Yeah. yeah. I think Top Gun was one of the first ones that was subsidized by Pepsi, right? And yeah, they were only twenty nine ninety nine as opposed to $150? They, yeah, that they started to sell them, you know, in the stores back then, like Caldor. You can get them yeah, for fourteen ninety five, fifteen ninety nine. Sure. You know, then that's when I, that was about the time when I started to see actual pre recorded tapes in the house instead of just Sony, JVC, you know. Right. Taped off Channel 11 with commercials yeah. in it. Yeah, Channel 11, yeah. Or like, you know, you had your, your movies like uh, Saturday Night Fever with the curses bleeped out, you know, right. for TV. And yeah. Well, let me ask you um, about um, streaming. If you saw, let's say there was a, a, let's say Amazon bought into libraries where you can now tap into the, the vast collection of Amazon and the streaming numbers went up. Um, it doesn't have to be Amazon. Let's say it's, it's we'll, we'll, 
we'll bring the spirit of the, the Roadrunner and, and the Coyote into it. Acme streaming video comes in, and your numbers start to go and are comparable to your DVDs or maybe exceed your DVD search uh, stats. Would you actually consider scaling back DVDs? Not do, right away. Not, not right away. Uh, maybe even a better question would be, do you foresee a day when streaming will become king? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely, I'm I'm thinking at at least f- anywhere from from five years down the line. I'm sure that's going to become the uh, the standard, because you know we see people now today. They're on a on a train or on a plane, and they have their their tablet. They have their whole movie library with them, right. watching it on on their tablet or you know they're looking at a video on their phone and uh it's just the convenience now that at the press of a button you can have your your favorite film or you know you can even read your favorite book at the touch of a button now right and there's always those pirated videos that are on youtube where you can watch the whole movie in 10 minute increments true true yeah i think i saw interstellar that way you mean what it had? Uh, it had ten ten minute sections, like nine videos. Yeah, and then the next one, and you know how it auto plays the next one. It would play the next section of the of the movie, and then you get halfway through the movie, and it would skip a section, and you'd have to oh no, and then you have to go hunt through all of them to find that section, and it would pick up again. I've seen on YouTube, uh, they've they've actually in some videos have expanded the scope into beyond pan and scan so you're going to actually get it on there i mean the credits are like hanging off yeah right, i right. guess so that it doesn't trap it mm-hmm. or i've seen ones too with like a uh, like almost like a like a, a a glare over it you know, like a glare. Maybe so they recorded it off a screen or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's like, you know, that that's poor quality. I mean, it's better just just stream it. Exactly. <laughs> buy How it. desperate are you to see this no, movie for no, free? I know. When you can stream it for what two ninety nine, dollar ninety nine, two ninety nine. Yeah, but I I agree with you. I think what there is going to be a day when everything is going to be streamed, and. Uh, the, the idea of taking out a DVD will be as archaic to us as cassettes are to our kids. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. The, the concept that I, you know, that's still hard for me to understand is the tangibility of holding it and reading liner notes, at, like in an album, mm-hmm. or reading, you know, if you get, like, I have the collector's edition of Saving Private Ryan, and, you know, the the book that came along with it and it tells the stories and the background and the making of the movie. How does that play into all this? Will there be an extra, like there is sometimes there's extra DVDs that have some of the, maybe the director's commentary or something like that. Well, maybe, maybe you'll get that or you'll get a trailer on a, on a stream or like if you, if you see the little box on Amazon and it's, it says play film and then next to that, maybe it'll be like play trailer, play commentary. But uh, maybe if they charge two ninety nine for the stream, you get that with it. Right. But still, you know, there's no artwork. You're just looking at 
the poster on a TV screen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, a lot of a lot of work went into just the way they used to advertise films with the uh, with the with the posters. They used to hire these artists to draw these elaborate, like the Star Wars poster, right? right nothing like any of the characters in, in in the actual movie, or Jaws, or. And a, lo a lot goes into making the uh, linear notes for the case and the the little the little slip papers with you know notes on the production and. Mm -hmm. You know, little histories of the actors in there, and you know that's that might get lost in just a streaming world. So I remember um, when we had worked together, and you were working like many of us do, and when you're working as a part timer, looking for that that the great white elephant that is called a full time job. Uh, we worked together at Longwood, and you were work also working at the Islip Library, and you told me about the day you crawled up into the attic and found all of those movies. And we kind of touched on that a little bit earlier. Uh, and you had gotten them and you had uh, digitized them. And, uh, you know, I always found that to be really fascinating. And then I started doing that with my old VHS home movies. And I put them on YouTube uh, so my daughters could see them anytime they wanted to. Of course, they're locked, so, you know, they're, they're private. But... Um, for me, you know, the digitization of it probably started with my, my wedding video because it came in VHS. Where did it begin for you with video preservation? I mean, it didn't start when you were climbing through the attic at Islip. No, I, I probably, when I, I, I took my, I started to take my tapes in like 2002 or maybe three, and when I got my first recordable DVD player, mm -hmm. and I started transferring some of them to disc, um, because some of the material that I had on, on the tapes, if it was taped, let's say, off TV in 1985, and it had never been rebroadcast, I had thought to myself then, I said, you know, this tape may not hold out forever. Let me transfer it to DVD um, so that at least it's preserved. This way, you know, someday if it comes out on the DVD um, commercially, I'll get the commercial copy. Mm -hmm. But uh, <coughs> if it never turns up ever again, at least I have a DVD copy of it, you know, sure. preserved. And... Because there were things that I taped that I hung on to going way back, you know, when I was a kid that I pre-timed, you know, like there were some unsold TV pilots that I had taped that wow. will turn up in, in the book of unsold TV pilots. They may have been aired one time, two at most, and have never turned up. And, you know, yeah. there's a whole... A whole market out there for collect for people collecting these unsold pilots and you know sometimes every once in a while like you know tv land or somebody will if they dig up a few of them they'll show hey this was this was pitched as a show and only had one episode you know or there were tv specials you know oh, the after were, school specials or, or yeah some of those that may have never been rebroadcast you know and it's you know and it's funny you mentioned that because it just popped into my head every time i see that progressive 
insurance commercial. Oh, the one with the color is all messed yeah, up. Every once in a while, the, the sound goes off. And it's got and the hokey music. You always pop into my head. Because <laughs> all I keep thinking about is there's two things that, that I think about. One is thinking, wow, if Steve would have gotten a copy of that earlier, he probably could have preserved it a lot better. And then the other thing is that, that look of disdain on your face, like, that was really poorly done. <laughs> Whenever I see that, I, it just makes me laugh, and I always think of you. Yeah, it's a, a lot of... I, I mean, I, I have one that... It was three unsold pilots that were weaved together, that that were packaged and played on late-night TV. And uh, for some reason, I had recorded these, and I played it back, and I said, oh, you know, I'll hang on to that. And then hanging on to stuff over the years, you go through stuff, and you go, you know, that's... You start looking things up, saying, you know, this is, this is not listed anywhere. This could be like the lost... The lost piece of uh, of television or film, and you want to transfer that to keep it. Or it's somebody who wasn't a star yet. Maybe you have an early George Clooney or a, sure, an early sure. Mark Hamill or something like that. Well, you get something like the Star Wars Christmas special. Uh, I remember that was that was sought after for years and years and years. I, I'm gonna date myself. And, I remember when that came on, and here I am sitting in my pajamas as a kid, probably seven or eight years old. And loving every ounce of it because back then you went to the movies and you saw it, and then when it was out of the movies, it was gone. And there was no talking though in the beginning. I think it was just Chewbacca. It, and that's what was so. I just remember this feeling of being like this feeling bubbling inside as a kid, like it's Chewbacca. They're back and they're on my TV. I don't have to go to the movies to see them. Thinking I was never going to see that movie again because mm. back in those days, it came out in the movies and that was it. We couldn't afford Showtime with the brown box, the red button, and the black button. So we weren't going to see it ever again. And Star Wars, was, you know, was never going to be on regular TV. And here we are later with all the DVDs. And Tapes and right. all that. But, yeah, I mean, the Star Wars Christmas episode was one of those things that, like you said, was sought after for a very long time because it was so bad and so cringeworthy that I think Lucas buried it, right? Well, now, now you can you can find it. Oh, it's on, all over YouTube. On DVD, yeah, yeah that's yeah. on YouTube, and I, I've se- I've seen it. I think I maybe watched it one Christmas season, and I said, "No, oh, there's Art Carney," you know, and it's like what? I know it's it, it, it's almost painful. It's cringeworthy, but you know, it just reminds you of a time when the TV special was a big thing. You it was know, a huge deal. When somebody had a variety variety special, like a Circus of the Stars or a Battle of the Network Stars. Or even something like Donnie and Marie or, Sh- mm-hmm. or Sonny and Cher the, their guests. or Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas. And a lot of that stuff, unfortunately, the television studio, the, the, they destroyed them or they That's erased right. over them. Or, you know, they, they needed the tape, so they taped over it. And... For those people that had access to tape in the early days who taped these things off TV, in some cases, those are the only thing that's still surviving. Well, isn't that what happened with uh, the Honeymooners? The At hun- least some of them. Some of the early Honeymooners, they would tape right off the Cinescope? Oh, yeah. They used to put a camera up to the, uh, up to the TV screen. The director would do that because they were these were live shows so what the director would do is they would put the camera 
up to the TV screen and record it. It was kinetoscope, and right. they would do it so they got their stage directions down pat. Mm-hmm. And these kinescopes were all that were left of these live broadcasts. And that was with a lot of the shows. That was like your show of shows was kinescope we have from Texaco. that. Texaco Star Theater, um, Martin and Lewis, the early ones mm-hmm. from the sure. 1951-52. And, you know, and they have this almost like you're watching them on a 50s TV with the, because with of the, the lines sort of in there. And, and, the, and at the curved corners and... But it looked like it was somebody sitting in a movie theater with a video camera. But had they not done that, those They'd would be, be lost, lost forever. Right, right. Now, I know that um, I'm a bit of a, a radio show nerd from the 40s, and I'm a, I'm a huge Bing Crosby nerd. And in reading everything that I've read about Bing and some of the things he was involved with, he never liked doing live radio. And he was known as being a little bit of a lazy guy. And there was a guy that was a radio uh, corpsman in Europe during the war. And when the war ended, um, actually before the war ended, they were fascinated because the BBC went off the air at midnight and Radio Free France went off the air and there was nothing on except for Germany, who broadcasted 24-7. And it would be 3 in the morning and there'd be orchestral music playing. So, you know, they always considered, well, it's a totalitarian regime. So they're forcing an orchestra to play at 3 in the morning because there was no other way unless they had it on record. But how would you broadcast a record? It was very difficult to do back then. And they were getting bombed and everything Mm -hmm. else. So after the war, this radio operator is able to go into one of the broadcasting uh, facilities in occupied Germany. And they discover that they were using something called magnetic tape. They brought it back. Uh, he actually shipped the machine back because back then you could take whatever you want from the spoils of war, and he, shipped, he disassembled it and shipped it back to his home in San Francisco, put it back together, put the tapes in, did recordings, and somehow he got in touch with Bing Crosby, and Bing Crosby helped to develop it and take that German technology one step further and helped to create the company that is now BASF, which was a huge tape company Mm-hmm. And he actually revolutionized taping a live broadcast for a play later. So what he would do is he would record for two days and record all his shows for the week in two days and then have the rest of the week off. And then they would edit it, and then they would play it as though it was live. One of those early companies was Ampex. Yes. Ampex. Mm-hmm. And... They, the reel to reel for home use came out in around about the 50s, the late 50s. And uh, I, I have one of the machines. Mine's not from the late 50s, mine's from the late 70s. But uh, I remember my uncle had one of them, an the, Ampex. The, the tapes, the sound quality actually, f- as far as tape goes, it always had the optimum best sound. It always had a hiss, and, though. And uh, it was this this one Akai that I have, the 1630 Akai, has sound on sound features, and mm-hmm. it uh, it has it's uh, it has the Dolby symbol, so you could flick the Dolby switch up, mm-hmm. and um, it 
if you put like a like a Beatles reel on there or a Rolling Stones reel, you know, hooked to a good receiver, it sounds it's it's, it's still insane. going. Yeah. Yeah. You could probably cut a vinyl recording off of it or make a dupe out of it because it's it's as close to master as you're gonna get. Oh yeah, I mean a lot of the original masters are all of course from tape. Yeah. I mean they're they're all you know, if you got they gave up wax in the forties. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things too is the a lot of the if you listen to the early recordings too from the the teens and the twenties, they were recording them through the horn. Yep. So it, you get yeah. the tinny sound. So RCA, like what they did with the recordings of like Caruso, is they would try to up the bass to knock some of the treble out so you'd get rid of that tinny sound right. and then they they called it reprocessed stereo mm -hmm. or reprocessed for stereo one of the interesting ones because there's a movie out now and there's a documentary about it was with the Florence Foster Jenkins mm -hmm. who was considered to be the worst opera singer ever <laughs> she um she self-published her own records, you mm -hmm. know, in a recording studio. And the voice was so terrible and out of whack that the VU meters would be into the red. I mean, and they'd be stuck there. They wouldn't even move. The engineer would be going crazy trying to get the voice. Like the little rascals, right? But uh, her records, after she died, RCA bought the rights to her records and they had to reprocess them all to to play on a the stereo um and <laughs> you could you could hear when whenever something is reprocessed and almost sounds like it's there's an echo because mm -hmm. it's reprocessed for stereo sound but it was really recorded monophonically originally and right. you know i i call it fake stereo you know but I do, I do have a few uh, albums that are reprocessed. <laughs> so I have a, another question for you. Um, we were talking about, you know, pre video preservation and things like that. What is your process for video preservation? Like, um, can you do it with any movie? You know, what what's the the, the patent, trademark, copyright issue or law with that? Well, what what. What I did with my own family films was we had the the eight millimeters transferred to tape, mm -hmm. and then I just I took the tapes and I transferred them to DVD. But with films, if if I come across something and it was even if it was something filmed locally, mm -hmm. you want to find out you know who the owner is before you do anything like. When I found the materials in the attic, I, I tracked down who the filmmaker was, and I got in touch with him. Mm -hmm. And he said, by all means, put it on DVD. Sure. And I've one of the things I do is I go to the Library of Congress copyright office, and I check to see if there's a present copyright. You do that on online. The item. Mm -hmm. um, other times... I, if I check on the IMDb, if it's listed in there and it says uh, company credits, such and such a company, mm -hmm. I see if it still exists. 
if it was bought by another company and I can't find it in the Library of Congress, I'll try to contact that company mm -hmm. and see who the rights holder is. And if I can't find it, I, I won't, you know, for my own personal use, maybe I'll transfer it, but I, I won't do anything making it public if right. I don't have verification. Right. Because yeah, that's not something you could even do. I mean, you, you I guess you could make the argument that f you the library is not making any money from right, it, so use. it's acceptable use. Yeah, but um, but you really would want to be one hundred percent sure. Yeah. yeah. So w with your process, you have a I guess a, a, DV a VHS a DVD burner for preservation. I have I I keep I kept the top load, and I kept a. Uh, high higher end front loading VHS and I have them hooked to a recordable DVD player okay my three-quarter has uh, if I put BNC cables on them I can convert it from BNC to, to RCA to record uh, onto a DVD mm -hmm. I, I prefer to use HDMI cable mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, just because the data transfer is better Right, but if the if it's not a you know if the machine doesn't have it or I can't do some kind of conversion, then I have to use the the RCA ones. But uh, I've i do I tend to work that way. Sometimes um, I'll use the external burner that I have mm -hmm. on my computer. Sure. But uh, I've once I've made a copy of it onto a DVD, I can put it into my my computer and then make multiple copies right need be i could upload it and just make 10 12 copies if i'm doing that but uh i i've done a lot of things on the with with my wires <laughs> it reminds me of the day when uh you know being a teenager and not having a dual cassette recorder and having two you know cassette recorders and you Go to Radio Shack and you buy the, you buy the headphone jack, the, the Y splitter, and you run the two lines and you put them in another Y splitter on the other machine and into the mic jack and you're trying to make copies of cassettes and what's the statute of limitation for copyright violation again? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it, what you're saying ring rings with me. Um, so do you ever get involved in um, preserving movies that are only available um, on the old eight? or 16 millimeter reels that when we were back in high school and junior high school that that's how we used to watch movies before the VCR became the, the thing I don't I don't have um, I've, I've I've considered looking for one but I don't have it, one of the machines to transfer those formats what what I used to do is there was a guy I used to use in Oakdale when I came across that Particular there format. was also a guy in Ronkonkoma, right? Right by where Coles is now. There was a, a small photography store there. Well, this guy I used to go to. He was by Wendy's in Oakdale. He was Mr. Okay. Video. Yeah. yeah, he's. I think he's gone now. He's yeah, long gone. Yeah. Yeah. And I would I would have it made onto VHS, and right. then I would just transfer it from there to. It was an TV. expensive proposition too. Yeah, it had to be something that was really, you know, going to be like like family films. Um, I I had a film somebody took 
at a parade in 1975 in Manhattan. So I said, that's something you're going to want to see. Sure. So, you know, I, I preferred that they did it just straightforward because sometimes they, you know, they have the option to add a music track in there. And I said, just do it as it is. I want to see it silent. You know? Right. Yeah. I, I think um, my mother-in-law had done that with all their home movies. And she had put a, a music track on it, and it was just dreadful. <laughs> it was horrible. Yeah. I mean, you really don't need a soundtrack. I actually had um, old movies um, that my parents had that were 8 millimeter, and I had them converted to, uh, to VHS, and then I converted them to DVD. And one of them, I remember, it was like a really special treat when we were really little. It was Heckle and Jekyll in black and white with no sound. Mm-hmm. I mean, there probably was a soundtrack in there, but the projector that we had didn't play sound. And we were lucky that it even worked because half the time it would flicker and, you know, it would be a train wreck. Um, but when they transferred it, I just gave them a whole bunch of reels. And not only did they transfer everything, they put it on one large reel for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I had. And uh, there's Heckle and Jekyll. And the, the best part is when I showed my kids, like, what is this? Like, did, was somebody, was your life a cartoon when you were little? Like, they, they didn't get the concept of it. So I, I, I thought that was always kind of funny. Um, so let me ask you, um, of the movies that you've preserved, how many do you circulate? Well, we have one. Uh, you know, ballpark. I'm not going to hold you to the exact number. It's about a, a dozen. A dozen. a dozen, yeah, they were ones that were uh, of local uh, significance. Mm-hmm. You know, one one that was an interview filmed with somebody at a vineyard in 1980. Um, another one was um, people on the beach in the 60s. You know, just showing the area back then, the the the, the scenery and. Um, there was another one that's uh, an interview with the Southampton town historian from 1980. Wow. <laughs> with, you know, who talking about uh, how the town was founded and, you know, the, its beginnings. And it's about a half hour. And uh, these are, were all tapes that turned up, but of local significance. And they're all in the, they're all available for circulation. Um, Do you keep them mostly in local history? There's a there's a copy in local history of each, but there's also a circulating copy because I made circulating copies of them. Mm-hmm. The masters have been put away, but the the DVD copies are out there for for viewing. That's really that's really neat. So what have you learned from your private movie collection that you can apply to the collection at East Hampton? Well, one of the things is when, you know, careful selection, because, Uh you know, you don't want to buy every movie someone was in. Like, you don't want to buy every Marlon Brando movie because, you know, there may be one that was just so horrible nobody's even going to ask for it you know and if someone does ask for it 
you know, you, you can just, you, you have the system where you can interloan, so it's mm -hmm. better just to borrow it from somewhere else than to, than to add it to your collection where, you know, it may only circulate once and sit there, you know, taking up space. Mm. Um, so, you know, it would be look for the essentials. Well, naturally, always you want to keep in mind what people are asking for. But uh, as far as supplemental materials, um, keep keep what you're you're looking for. Like to your one of the things you can use is there's a list of that uh, Roger Ebert put out of it's got 380 titles that he thought were the best films. Uh -huh. You know, and I I went through it not that long ago and found out that I've seen 225 of them. Wow! So I was like, wow, you know. So using lists, um, going by um, you know Academy Award winners, um, cult favorites, uh, things that uh, you know early performances. Uh, but you can't you can't just go raid the store and buy everything because <laughs> you'll run out of space and some of them will become dust collectors. Sure. So you know you have to you have to have it uh, you have to have a plan. Let's put it that way. Okay. Just to to wrap up, I think this the, the question that I think is really important because it kind of ties into the library world. Uh, if you could give any words of advice to those libraries, or for that matter, any cinema collector who wants to preserve their collection, what would it be? Well, if, of of what they have presently, correct. Yeah. Do do your research on it. Look it over. Look up what you have. Um, if you if you find something you came across, you know that. You taped off TV in 1980. See if you could find it on the IMDb before you toss it. See um, if anybody's looking for it, if it's sought after, if it's ever been rebroadcast, you know, because you, you don't want to lose pieces of history. Right. Um, so, you know, just assess your collection carefully and... Uh, if you have VHS tapes, you know, keep them in a room temperature situation because you mm -hmm. don't want them to get corroded. Um, and, uh, you know, just enjoy it while you have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and expertise with us because I think it's important not only to preserve, um, but also to know, you know, what the rules are with regard to making copies and, and you know, doing the preservation end of it. So when we come back, um, we're going to ask Steve our top 10 library questions or what we call the 03202 list. Uh, it's the Dewey number for top 10 lists. Thank you to Melanie Cardone from uh, Longwood for coming up with the idea. And uh, if you're a frequent listener of the podcast, then you'll know that we ask these questions of all our guests. So we will be right back.
Welcome back. We are back for the uh, our top ten list with Steve Spataro, who is the adult adult reference head at the East Hampton Library. So uh, he's going to be participating in the 032 list, which corresponds to the Dewey number for the top 10 lists. Uh, this list is a top 10 list of librarian-related questions. And every time we do this, we try to keep the same name for, the, for this list, but it always gets fudged up. It, it gets crazy. So we, we, may, we may just call it the Melanie Cardone list because <laughs> it seems to be the only thing that's been consistent. Uh, so these uh, questions were inspired by the website Literary Hub, which is a website with very interesting library-related stories and interviews. Uh, you can see their work by visiting their website at www.lithub.com. That's L-I-T-H-U-B.com. Uh, and check them out because they do a lot of great, um, they do a really nice job educating and informing and uh, doing things for the library world. Uh, they have some really good articles and they I, I really enjoy reading their, their website, and their Twitter feed is really good, too. Um, so I just want to say thank you to Literary Hub for inspiring this list. So first question, what did you want to be when you were a child? First thing was, um, was a DJ. <laughs> How come I'm not surprised? Because <laughs> I, I, I started collecting 45s when I was like four years old, and I used to walk around with the, my little Fisher Price with the, <laughs> the records stuffed up there in the case, and you know, anywhere there was an outlet, I'd plug it in and start playing the records. Oh, that's funny. So... Now that that branched out into other things, but it was probably it was probably DJ, and then actor, movie director, librarian. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Um, it would probably have been in the in the early eighties, eighty eighty one, eighty two, um, and. Uh, the library was very close to our house, so you know my mother would uh, take us there when we were children, um, you know, for a library program or um, to to check out materials, and uh, you know we and then though back then too, before they had CDs to lend, they had record albums to lend, so you can go in there and you can take out you know. LP by the latest artist and mm -hmm. you know uh, I, if I got bored on the children's side I would walk over into the adult side and flip through and see what was <laughs> <laughs> okay so when did you decide to work in a library um, in the early very early 2000s like 2001 2002 mm -hmm. I was I was working in in uh, in a in a bank at the time because I had graduated college with my bachelor's and it was in English literature, mm -hmm. and I was like, eh, you know, I gotta see about doing something else. And it was I may have come across something or there was an open house I think for St. John's University and it was you know for MLS uh, library school and I said you know let me check this out so I started looking into it and I said I think I'm going to give that a shot so I was still working in the bank while I was going for my library degree and then 
when I had a few credits under my belt, I decided that I was going to look for something part-time, and I found a part-time and at at Islip first, and mm -hmm. uh, I said, okay, I think this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who is your favorite fictional librarian? Um, well, that's a tough question. This is always a tough one. You know, there's, it's been in so many, so many films. You know, going back to the beginning of films, and. You know, there's the scenes in the New York Public and Breakfast at Tiffany's and the scenes in New York Public and You're a Big Boy Now. And then you have the scenes in, uh, in, in All the President's Men, the big wide shot in the Library of Congress. But I would have to say there's a, there's a movie called They Might Be Giants. It's an old film with George Scott where he, uh, he thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. And there's a little private library that he goes into in a scene, and the librarian in there is the comedian actor Jack Guilford. Mm -hmm. He's kind of dressed like almost like Doctor Who. Uh -huh. And uh, it's just almost the scene, the way it's shot, it's like an archive. And he kind of goes there to, to you know, do his, do his research. <laughs> and uh, I always thought that was a good a good library a good library scene with librarian i mean there's a there's one <laughs> that's kind of awkward in uh, in somewhere in time with christopher reeve where mm -hmm. he asks a librarian for some material on a particular actress and she's like here it is <laughs> just like <laughs> i said okay not good customer service there yeah exactly you know? And then, you know, there's another uh, library scene in a movie called Gumshoe with uh, Albert Finney where he's talking very loud in the library in England and everybody's shushing him. And he's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of different, different scenes, but I, I would have to say, you know, the one in, in They Might Be Giants looked like, you know, more... Of scholarly type of uh, mm -hmm. of a setting. So, what would um, you be doing if you were not working in a library? Um, I would probably be working odd jobs, trying to get into into acting. <laughs> <laughs> not surprised there. Yeah, yeah. Waiting tables and trying out for for Broadway or. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to not have an agent, <laughs> but, you know, so something to fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> so what was uh, your favorite, What what is your favorite section of the library? Uh, that's hard to, because uh, I, I, I go through everything from fiction to nonfiction, you know, I'm, Going through the collection, checking to see, you know, the, how if, if it's straightened out and sure. the, the, if there are books on top, because there shouldn't be books on top of books. Right. But uh, I'd say the hardest section to maintain is the literature section because a lot of the books, you know, you'll. You'll you'll get use out of the uh, out of your Shakespeare and your your Middle English and 
your restoration plays, but some of the poetry, you know, it's almost now like a uh, like a specialized field because you know when when you're going through your book's circulation and you have it set to you know you you're weeding what hasn't circled in five years and you're finding all this great stuff still hasn't moved it's like oh. it hurts it really hurts so you know it's a matter of trying to retain what you can and fit it in space-wise and i had the same issue with the with the movie section and i had you know there was a couple of books i had on lucille ball and a couple of other books that i had that that were on uh early silent cinema and i was like i i cannot pull these i can't pull these so you know i managed to work it in somehow but i would say when i was younger i that was the first Dewey number I knew, 791. I knew where to go, you know. If I wanted Lennon Malton, go to 791. <laughs> That's where it was. Okay, so if you had an infinite uh, space and budget in your library, what would you add to it? Everything. <laughs> um, no, I would, I would have as many computers as possible for people to use, uh, we would have a, uh, a, a 70 millimeter motion picture screen theater with a stage for performances, plays. <laughs> um, just an, an infinite number of books, you know, ev everything from local writers to some, some um, rare first editions uh, maybe i would have a rare first editions case that people mm -hmm. would be allowed to look through and i would just you know, there'd be a classroom uh, everything <laughs> okay so um what do you love the most about your library that it, anyone can go there and uh they could they could get pretty much anything that they're looking for in the ways of books, films, music. Uh, if we don't have it, we'll always try and get it from uh, Interloan. But all of the services that are offered now, you know, mm -hmm. there's something there for everyone. If it's a rainy day and you want to bring your, your kids, there's always a children's program going on. There's you know, you need to use the computer. There's always there's a dozen public computers there. You know, you want to sit in a quiet room and read a nice book or look at the newspaper, you can do it there. <laughs> so true. And, uh, you know, if you want to go out and have uh, a nice sandwich in the garden, well, you know, you got a, some nice topiaries and a fountain out there now, and people can sit on the bench in the secret garden or if they want to go out into the courtyard uh, the wi-fi picks up out there perfectly fine so you know it's it's loaded with places to go and things to do i mean you can you can kill at least three or four hours at the library <laughs> <laughs> so what is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you at the library not necessarily the worst thing but the weirdest thing I would have to say one time the alarm kept going off, the fire alarm kept going off, and we couldn't figure out why, and it turned out that um, a mama spider had baby spiders in the in the alarm 
thing and they were moving around the baby spiders and they kept triggering off the, really? the sensor. <laughs> wow, that's that's different. Yeah. Um, so who is your favorite regular patron? Oh, we have a lot of, um, of regular patrons that come in, um, you know, during the day, um, families that come in uh, on the weekends. Um, I've met people who were in all kinds of businesses, people who are retired now, um, people who had backgrounds in entertainment and writing, artists. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't put it, narrow it down to one person because there are so many people that, you know, I've gotten to know over the past seven years. So yeah, sure. It's, Both it's, famous and, and anonymous as yeah, well. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I, one, one particular person, I mean, there are people that I see around the village all the time, you know, and it's, if I've been out at a movie or a play, my wife has met them and, mm-hmm. you know, they ask me, Oh yeah, how's your wife doing? You know? So it's, you know, it's almost like I don't. I don't want to say like Mayberry, but, but you know, it could especially in the winter time, I bet. Oh yeah, everybody's. It's it's just very local in the winter time. That's great. And uh, you know, all the restaurants have their prefixes. It's the three for thirty-three, three-course meal. You know. Wow. The American Hotel has the three-course meal for $25, and then for $5, you can see the movie at the Bay Street Theater in the wintertime. You That's know. great. So it's a lot a lot of things going on in town, even in the off-season. The library has a lot going on to just keep people busy. Um, you know, lots of programs. Next week... There's two movie screenings, a computer class, and uh, we have someone doing a talk on all about Social Security. Mm -hmm. And that's just some of the adult things that are going on, aside from the story times for kids, and there's a music program for children, and young adults. There's a lot for young adults going on, and it's everybody's involved. So... What are this is our last question? What are people without library cards missing out on? A lot, <laughs> a lot, right? Everything. Yeah, I mean, I, there are people who I've come across who've come into the library and they said, you know, I've I've lived here twenty five years. I never came in the library. It's the first time I'm coming in here, and I I didn't know you had all this stuff. Yeah, you know? that that seems to be the the uh, the the first time coming into a library line that everyone says. Or they're like, yeah, well, when I went into a library, it was just books and you had to be quiet. You know, now yeah. you have you have the computers and you guys, you show movies and you have music performances and there's all these services going on. It's more than just books. People, you know, we've had many a people getting a library card for the first time who hadn't been in the library in years, and they're just amazed at what's out there, what's offered now at the at the library. You know, those local history talks and tours for children, and 
as all, all just bus you know, trips, you know, every, yeah, cooking classes, and it's just it's it's growing, ever growing, and constantly evolving too, with all the new technologies coming out that are being embraced. Yeah, really is great. Well, Steve, I have to tell you, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. Um, the, the wealth of knowledge that you have about movies and, and movie preservation and everything is just, it, I'm glad we were able to actually have you in and, and have you in the podcast. And I haven't seen you in a while, so it's good to see you too. Um, here. So uh, we're going to wrap up. And uh, so it's all, t- all the time we have left for this edition. And if you have any questions or comments on the show, uh, please go to the contact us section of our website, uh, thelibrarypros.com where we also have notes and links from all of our episodes. You can also check out us on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Library Pros. And so you don't miss a thing, don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, Android, our email subscription service, and Google Play. And remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, if you were here, not putting out fires and Steve, because he's here today. And not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, the Hampton Library, or any other library. So with that, we're going to wrap up for this edition and come back and listen to us again. We'll see you soon. <laughs>